Welcome back to the latest edition of the Sports Politica podcast, the show that guides you through the dark underbelly of sports, power, and politics. I'm your host, Karim Zidane, and today I'd like to start by apologizing for the delay in the show. I was actually traveling over the past couple of weeks. I was in Toronto visiting my mother and helping her relocate back to Cairo. And yes, it was a quite a task at hand. It was about 900 square feet full of 10 years worth of stuff that even though my mother had shipped several boxes, 32 to be exact, to Egypt ahead of time and had packed almost 60 kilos of carry-ons for the airplane, I still had my work cut out for me. Both my wife and I were out there for well over a week trying to empty out the house and deal with the overall transition. And thankfully we're done now and my mom is safe and happy in Egypt and settled now. But uh, it's been quite a difficult process and I'm only just getting back in and settling in here. So forgive me for the delay. But back to the show now. This week I'd like to discuss the UFC again. I know I just did an episode about the trend of UFC fighters becoming right-wing politicians, but this is a little different. I want to focus on the UFC's relationship with the United Arab Emirates, the wealthy Gulf state that shares a border with Oman and Saudi Arabia. The reason I want to focus on this topic is because of a recent interview that Tucker Carlson conducted with UFC President Dana White. The interview was featured on Carlson's new Twitter show and focused on a wide range of topics, including the UFC's decision to partner with Bud Light and the the controversy behind that, uh, given that there was a backlash that, the, that Bud Light received from American conservatives for its social media campaign featuring a transgender influencer. Dana White seemed to brush off the controversy entirely and even went so far as to say that if you view yourself as an American patriot, you would be drinking Bud Light. So it's good to know that pretty much any sponsor in the world, any company facing any sort of controversy, you want to have somebody who's going to back you up no matter what, you go find yourself a sponsorship agreement with Dana White because, buddy, there's nobody who kisses ass like Dana White. This, interestingly enough, brings me on to my next point, which is that the interview also featured this section on the UFC's relationship with the United Arab Emirates, as the interview was filmed during the UFC's most recent event in Abu Dhabi back in October, which was UFC 294. It was the section that caught my attention the most, honestly, mainly because of the outlandish statements that Dana White made, even by his already ridiculous standards. Now let's take a couple of minutes to listen in. So you've talked up Abu Dhabi, this tiny little emirate in the Persian Gulf uh, for a long time. What, yeah. why Abu Dhabi? I love everything about it. These guys are uh, forward thinkers, open-minded. Uh, the infrastructure that they have built in, in, in that incredible city. And I tell people all the time, if you have never been to a fight in Abu Dhabi, you have to come experience this place. And when COVID hit, these guys were light years ahead of everyone else when it came to COVID. Testing, the whole thing. And that's where we created Fight Island and we, where we ran through COVID uh, was with them. And because they're so progressive and, and uh, brilliant, they're brilliant. 
You're you're calling a theocracy progressive. It's a monarchy, yeah. right? Very progressive. You don't feel that way when you go there. It's 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 not. What's funny is because because of the things that we hear about the Middle East here in America and have our whole lives. Yeah. People are afraid to go there. People yeah, are scared. Never felt safer anywhere than I felt when I when I'm in Abu Dhabi. They don't have a crime problem in Abu no, Dhabi. No, they do not have a crime problem. They don't have a crime problem. They deal with crime the way crime should be dealt with. <laughs> yeah, no, crime isn't a problem over there. Swift and certain. And and the royal family over there are some of the most humble, brilliant, amazing human beings you could possibly meet. I love those people. I consider them all uh, very, very close friends of mine. I agree, I agree with that for the record. Um, they are humble and they're forward thinking. They're not just thinking about next elections. 100%, they're um, incredible. But you know, when you were 23, did you ever think we'd get to a place where you felt freer in Abu Dhabi than in other places? <laughs> Uh, no. Well, I was 23. That was the last thing I was thinking about anyway. But uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's been a cool experience for me to create the relationship that I've created over there. And uh, I value it very much. These people will be uh, my, 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 my close friends till the day I die. And, and I will do business with them until the day I die. We just did an extension on our deal over there. Um, we might as well have done the extension for the next 40 years because... I'm never not going to do business with Abu Dhabi, ever. You so know, it feels I'm like one the of these guys. You. When you, oh, it's definitely the future. And the other thing is, I'm one of these guys that I'm a very loyal person. And 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 once we've done things together, and you've been good to me, I will I will pay you back. You know, 20 times. So um, what Abu Dhabi has done for me, my business, especially through COVID, um, I'll, I'll never forget. And uh, I I will be with them till the day I die. Okay. So Dana White said a lot of ridiculous things there that we're going to break down and try and make sense of. But first, I wanted to step back and give listeners sort of an overview of the relationship between the UFC and the UAE, as it is a long and strange story that I think you will find very interesting. So the UFC's relationship with Abu Dhabi dates back to 2010, actually, when this company called Flash Entertainment, this state-owned and sort of live entertainment and promotions company, purchased 10% of the organization. The deal helped facilitate the UFC's first shows in Abu Dhabi. The first event I remember was UFC 112, which took place in April 2010 and featured a really, really shitty main event between Anderson Silva and Damian Maia. Now, Old UFC fans, you might remember that fight where Silva simply refused to engage with Maya, leading Dana White himself to call it the lowest moment of his tenure as UFC president at the time. The fight was such a flop, in fact, that it put an end to the UFC's hopes for this super aggressive expansion into the Middle East around 2010. It would take years for the organization to recover. The UFC actually would not return again for another four years. And when it did return in 2014, it took with it yet another forgettable fight, this time a heavyweight clash between really some aging veterans in Roy Nelson and uh, Antonio Nogueira. Both of those events took place in these custom-built open-air arenas that also at the time raised serious concerns about the labor conditions facing migrant workers involved in their construction. 
I remember around the time I joined Bloody Elbow in 2014, the site's former editor Brent Brookhouse wrote this really excellent op-ed condemning the promotion's decision to work with such human rights offenders. At the time, it cited this Guardian investigation that found that many of Abu Dhabi's migrant workers were, quote-unquote, living in squalor. Now, while Flash Entertainment eventually sold its shares in 2017, about a year after uh, Zufa LLC, the company that once owned the UFC, had sold to Endeavor, which is owned by Ari Emanuel, the UFC entered into this new five-year partnership with Abu Dhabi's Department of Culture and Tourism. Now, this happened around 2018, and that deal has since been extended all the way until 2028. So we've got about a little more than four years to go on this deal. Here is what Suad Abdelaziz Al-Husseini, the undersecretary of the DCT Abu Dhabi, had to say in a press release at the time. Over a 15-year relationship, UFC has extended its global reach and Abu Dhabi has established itself as a world capital for combat sports. Renewing our partnership with the UFC allows us to continue to stage major events that thrill visitors and residents. We are excited to extend the relationship and innovate together to grow the sport in the UAE and wider region. Now, I won't bore you with the details of every single UFC event that took place in Abu Dhabi, but suffice it to say that the relationship between the two entities continued to blossom. For example, during the COVID-19 pandemic, as the entire world ground to a halt, the two entities reached this agreement to establish what would come to be known as Fight Island. Basically, it was this sort of 10-mile safe zone for the UFC on Abu Dhabi's Yas Island. And it effectively meant that the UFC could continue to run shows in an isolated environment. It was an exceptionally sweet deal for the UFC. Not only did it mean that the organization could come back basically before any other major sports league, but Abu Dhabi basically covered all the costs as well. They paid a hosting fee, built uh, the infrastructure required, and covered expenses such as the COVID-19 testing, air travel, accommodations, catering. I mean, basically, all the UFC had to do was pay its own standard overhead being paying its staff and paying its fighters. Now, in return, the Emirates basically wanted to boost its economy, doing things such as, you know, igniting its tourism sector and furthering its brand really as this international fight capital that is capable of rivaling Saudi Arabia, which, as we know, has been sort of taking part in this unprecedented sports drive to emerge as this global hub for sports and entertainment. In many ways, the Fight Island events can be viewed as this incredible sales pitch, really, for Abu Dhabi tourism. This really became clear to me during the initial Fight Island run in 2020. I mean, they did end up going back to Fight Island again in 2021. So during the initial run in 2020, there was a time where it appeared that Abu Dhabi's government was actually planting PR guys in the press room among these sports journalists in order to ask fighters questions about their time in Abu Dhabi and, and whether they were enjoying themselves. And the big question that they kept asking was whether these fighters would bring their families back for a vacation in Abu Dhabi. Now, beyond promoting Abu Dhabi across its platforms, the UFC 
has also been willing to promote some of the Emirates' shadier projects, including this state-owned AI technology company that was behind spyware that was being used to spy on UAE citizens and dissidents. I still remember it very clearly. It was the UFC 257 pay-per-view, the one where Conor McGregor headlined against Dustin Poirier and ended up breaking his leg. Yeah, that one. Throughout the week, the UFC was inundating its fans with these references to this AI company called G42. I mean, I personally first spotted the logo on a t-shirt that Dana White was wearing during a pre-fight weigh-in ceremony. And then after the event, the UFC Arabia platform revealed that G42's technology was going to be used to bolster fight statistics and provide a wide range of data extracted from artificial intelligence features and developments. Things such as, you know, decoding facial expressions in order to detect emotions. Uh, the program was also reportedly capable of analyzing data from YouTube comments, fan reactions, and all sorts of other, you know, data in order to develop this this more nuanced understanding of the event in general. In theory, uh, the the aim is to sort of mine enough data to be able to enhance UFC fighter training regimen, statistics, analysis, and the overall science around fighting. Basically, it was a lot of big talk at the time, but there were some really interesting points that I think we need to consider here. Firstly, according to its official website, G42 is a leading artificial intelligence and cloud computing company dedicated to the development and implementation of holistic and scalable technology solutions. So the company's partnerships range from strategic teaming agreements, joint ventures, to direct investment while the industries they serve range from the government, healthcare, finance, energy, and of course, sports. However, there is more to it than that. The company is also a main investor in Totok, the Emirati messaging application that was accused of being a spy tool used to track those who install it. So it was the New York Times, actually, that published an investigation about this in December 2019. In the piece, they concluded that Totalk was a cleverly designed tool for mass surveillance that represented the latest emergence in a digital arms race among wealthy authoritarian governments. The report also claimed that the app's main intention was to spy on targets who installed the app on their phones, many unwittingly providing access to all their information. It was eventually removed from the Google and App Stores following the NYT investigation. Now here's another interesting point. G42 can also be traced back to Sheikh Tahnoun bin Zayed al Nahyan, the son of the founder of the UAE and the deputy ruler of Abu Dhabi and the country's national security advisor. Now among combat sports fans, Sheikh Tahnoun is actually best known as the Jiu-Jitsu Sheikh who helped transform Abu Dhabi into a combat sports hub. He's the founder of the Abu Dhabi Combat Club, the ADCC, and he also helped facilitate that deal I mentioned earlier that saw Flash Entertainment purchase 10% of the UFC in 2010. And it really can't be overstated just how much Sheikh Tahnoun helped popularize jiu-jitsu in the United Arab Emirates. He helped establish a national federation. He also encouraged the UAE government to invest in infrastructure such as training centers, academies, and jiu-jitsu-specific facilities. So, 
through this sort of encouragement, he was eventually able to convince his brother, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed al-Nahyan, who just so happens to be the UAE's current president, to designate jiu-jitsu as the country's national sport, incorporating it there into the local education system from 2008 onwards. It's now also mandatory in police forces, as well as in the military. Eventually, jiu-jitsu sort of became a symbol of Emirati identity, became the national sport, and it was integrated into society and was really recognized as as one of the biggest successes in the United Arab Emirates' soft power through sports. Now, this commitment really underscores the depths of the UAE's investments in, in, in combat sports and how much they view it as a tool to wield power and to shape its own image and to expand its influence on the world stage. This brings us back to the UFC, which was also one of the key investments for the United Arab Emirates in its sort of campaign to develop itself into this global hub for combat sports. So, as we were saying, the UFC basically helped promote a shady AI company that was investing in spyware used to ensnare dissidents. And no one batted an eye about it at the time. I believe I was the only journalist in the world of spurts who actually covered this at all at the time. And more recently, and another topic that only I seem to have been willing to cover recently, as I reported for Sports Politica in October, the UFC is also using its events in Abu Dhabi to dodge sanctions targeting Chechen dictator Ramzan Kadyrov and the wide range of fighters who represent his MMA fight club, which is known as Ahmed MMA. Now, both Kadyrov and his fight club are under U.S. Treasury sanctions, which means that U.S. persons are barred from doing business with them. This includes the UFC. Now, while the UFC was struggling to book those fighters on U.S. soil, including UFC star Hamza Chemaev, who it was believed was even facing a visa ban potentially, uh, on a side note there, the United States State Department would not confirm whether Chemaev was facing a visa ban, primarily because they do not offer up that kind of information. Now, meanwhile, the UFC does not have any sanctions whatsoever on Kadyrov. In fact, Kadyrov had previously attended a UFC event in Abu Dhabi just a few years ago where he stood in the front row alongside the UAE's Minister of Tolerance of all people. Yeah, I mean, that tells you pretty much everything you need to know about the UAE's foreign policy approach. This really hasn't changed over the past couple of years. I mean, at the most recent UFC event in, in Abu Dhabi, UFC 294, Hamza Chemaev took part in the co-main event, and two of his cornermen were actually two of Kadyrov's sons. Chemaev finished his fight, and in a video that was later posted by Ramzan Kadyrov, he appeared to just get into a car and was driven back to Dubai to an area which appeared to be Jumaira, where he met Ramzan Kadyrov. We've been told before that Ramzan Kadyrov, and we have suspected at least, let's say, that Ramzan Kadyrov has had a home in Dubai, and it appears that that's the case because Chemaev was literally driven from the arena in Abu Dhabi all the way back to Dubai, where he just met with Kadyrov, and eventually they bore a private plane from there and returned to Chechnya. So, all things considered, it appears it is far easier for the UFC to host these controversial fighters associated with Ramzan Kadyrov in the United Arab Emirates. Now, in return, the UFC has also taken it upon itself to sort of push Abu Dhabi's propaganda 
and its messaging. In his interview with Tucker Carlson, for example, Dana White claimed that Abu Dhabi's monarchy is progressive and brilliant in his words. He also said that they don't have a crime problem, which is an exceptionally lazy take even by Dana's abysmal standards. The truth is that the UAE is neither progressive nor free of crime. In fact, the UAE is an authoritarian state. This can't be stressed enough. It has seven constituent monarchies which are led by tribal rulers in an autocratic fashion. There are no democratically elected institutions and there is no formal commitment to free speech. These monarchies rule with an iron fist. Now, according to Human Rights Watch, UAE citizens and foreign nationals who publicly speak out against the local government are at risk of facing arbitrary detention, forcible disappearances, torture, I mean, you name it, right? The UAE government also limits freedom of expression using digital campaigns such as surveillance technology and spyware, as we've seen, to monitor dissidents. The Emirates also maintain a leading role in atrocities taking place around the world, including in Yemen which has also helped bring about one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world, according to the United Nations. Now, more than 20 million people across Yemen are what they call food insecure, while tens of millions have no access to safe and drink clean drinking water, uh, sanitation, or even adequate health care. Now, there are plenty of other examples of the UAE's human rights abuses, but I digress. The truth really here is that Dana White loves his UAE partners because they floated the bill when his company was facing a crisis during the pandemic. By keeping costs low and returning to business in record time in 2020, the organization really was able to increase its revenues during a time when the vast majority of sports leagues around the world were financially paralyzed. In the end, it was really all about the money. It's money that lures Dana and the UFC to its partners, and it's money that secures Dana's loyalty. It's a win-win situation, honestly, for Abu Dhabi as well. They gain an organizational partner that helps them reach their economic and tourism goals, and then they end up with a figurehead spokesperson like Dana White, who's just willing to say anything as long as the money's right. So honestly, it's no wonder the two entities are such big fans of each other. Whether it's dirhams or dollars, money sure does talk. Now, I'd like to make one last point about the UFC-UAE relationship. It's difficult to contextualize the importance of this partnership for Abu Dhabi without really considering the ongoing regional rivalry between the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Now, while the UAE and Abu Dhabi have been using sports as a form of soft power for decades now, I mean, we've seen it with Manchester City, we've seen it with their investment in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Saudi Arabia, on the other hand, has emerged as this significant contender with its unprecedented investments in the sporting landscape dating back to about 2016 when Mohammed bin Salman announced his Vision 2030 Master Plan. Mind you, the UAE had announced a very similarly named Vision 2030 Master Plan years earlier. So Saudi Arabia really is uh, copying the United Arab Emirates and trying to do so by investing a lot more money and uh, using a lot more glitz and glamour. And then, while Saudi Arabia captured these headlines for its investments in football, golf, and the WWE, they also made significant strides in combat sports, including things like boxing and MMA. 
So Saudi Arabia now hosts some of the biggest boxing matches in the world, including the upcoming heavyweight showdown between Tyson Fury and Oleksandr Usyk. Now, that's really one of the best fights in a generation, so Saudi really is hosting the biggest boxing fights there can be possibly made now. They've also purchased a minority stake in the Professional Fighters League, the PFL, which is basically the UFC's main competitor that lured away the UFC's former heavyweight champion Francis Ngannou when he was a free agent. So Saudi Arabia's foray into combat sports should be viewed within the context of its regional rivalry with the UAE. Now, Abu Dhabi has long been a global combat sports hub, especially through its influence over BJJ and the exclusive deal it used to have with the UFC throughout the MENA region. It was really the only place that was hosting UFC fights in the entire Middle East and North Africa region. Now, however, Saudi has since changed that. They're challenging Abu Dhabi's status as this hub for combat sports by hosting these exceptional boxing bounds and investing in MMA promotions. They've also secured their first UFC event in 2024. And while the UFC is only taking a fight night card to Saudi Arabia, I'm really curious to see how this relationship will develop in the long term. Will Saudi continue to partner with the UFC in an attempt to weaken Abu Dhabi's influence? Or will Saudi fund the PFL as a means to weaken the UFC and, by extension, the UAE's stronghold on MMA? At the moment, anything's possible. And on that note, that's it for today's show. And since we are so close to Christmas, it will also be the last show of the year. To be honest with you, I haven't had a proper vacation all year, and have reached a point where I need a couple of weeks off to avoid burning out. And the better I am, the better sports politica is going to be in the long term. So I hope you bear with me while I take a couple of weeks off to sort of recover. There will be some content placed on sports politica that you'll be able to read, but the podcast will be taking a break until next year. But before I let you go, I wanted to take a moment to thank all of you for tuning into the podcast each week. It's really been wonderful to see the community grow and to see so many of you engage with the content I'm producing. Thank you, sincerely. Please keep sending your feedback, your questions, suggestions, as I read every single comment on the site. And for those of you who can, please consider becoming a paid subscriber to Sports Politica. I am determined to keep the vast majority of the work freely available on the site, for all. But in order to do so, I really do need a dedicated group of volunteers to help keep the costs of operating the media platform down. If independent journalism serves a purpose in your life, please consider becoming a paid subscriber today. Until next time, take care and happy holidays.